Hello and welcome to Rounding the Earth. It is Monday. Uh, uh, let's see, the eighth, May, May the eighth. Cinco, Cinco de Ocho, uh, no, Ocho de Mayo. <laughs> oh goodness, that's going to be recorded for all of posterity now. Um, but I, I'm here today with my friend Gabe, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, practical matters of keeping your information private. And uh, Gabe is uh, Gabe is of the People's Republic of Libre Solutions Network. Do I have that right? Hello. Yes, just the Libre Solutions Network. Just Libre Solutions Network. Okay. <laughs> you, say, you say Libra instead of Libre. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much of that is just uh, people's preference, but I, I have that angle going for it because Got it's it. supposed to be for uh, free software. You know, Libra software, Libra it, freedom, rather than uh, gratis. Got it. Okay. <laughs> um, so what, what are we talking about today? We're talking about practical encryption. And this is this is not we're, we're not getting into complicated details here. Or are we? No, n not necessarily the implementation of it. I, I don't know how to uh, teach a cryptography class yet, maybe, but maybe eventually. I don't know. Okay, so this is something that that mom and pop can watch and learn right. a little bit from. That's that's the hope. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, I, I, I'm going to let you uh, get us started. Where are we going today? Well, most people will encounter encryption in two ways. The first way would be on your websites where people remember, you know, seeing the green padlock on your browser and it says this site is secure. They've been slowly trying to tone that notification down because all that guarantee means is that you have a direct connection that is secure to a server. You know, for instance, anyone behind Cloudflare, they have access to those keys and they can do whatever they want with it. So it's not a guarantee of perfect, you know, security and privacy, but it at least gives you something. And that was why, you know, there was such a big push to put HTTPS on as many websites as possible. Now, the second way people encounter this is even something like WhatsApp will advertise that it has end-to-end -end encryption, which means that the service you're using is encrypting the content before you send it to the server, it's stored on there and then say send to your contacts or however you're sending it out. Those are the two major ways people will see it up close. Okay. And okay, so when, when I'm connected with a, a server that says, uh, uh, that has that little green notification and everything is safe. Um, now there, there is a certain level of security that I can probably trust. It would take, uh, it would take at least a professional to, to then intercept my data as in somebody who, who you know, knows how to get into that server or who has control of that server. So the odds are I'm not safe from an intelligence agency snooping on, <laughs> on my information exchange with that server with packets going back and forth, but I probably am safe from 99% of the public, but you know, or 99.9% probably. Um, <clears throat> but I'm probably already safe from those people, aren't I? That's a good point. Um, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to this is that there's also time. You know, encryption basically just makes it X much harder, so much harder that it would take, you know, thousands or millions of years to decode the transmission. Whereas, you know, if you don't use encryption at all, you just have to be careful that it's not stored, which is its own problem. But then that's where end-to-end -end encryption actually does protect you in that case, because there are data breaches all the time. You know, if you're, you know, I, I know uh, on haveibeenpwned.net or .com, I forget which one it is, um, you know, fit, uh, what's the the Fitbit uh, site, they get they get hacked all the time. And so, you know, it's like if you have your accounts, all your information is done with them, any information that is not end-to-end -end encrypted is basically up for grabs whenever there's a data breach. 
Interesting. Um, this is actually, uh, I wrote an article. I'm going to bring this up in a few moments. I'm going to go find about it. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to go find it um, so that I can pull this up. But uh, I actually thought about this back in 2021. I kind of wondered to myself, are we getting past the era of big data if everybody starts to uh, worry about their privacy with data like Fitbit specifically, for instance? Or is it possible that there is some sort of solution that comes after it? Um, I'm going to go ahead and bring this up because I was able to find it easily enough. <clears throat> this was one of my uh, first uh, Bitcoin Wars articles, and I and I was thinking about this problem. Like, you know, we we love we we want big data in the sense that we want uh, we want there to be pools of data from which we can learn and make useful for healthcare, right? Um, you know, if we all pull our data, if, if we had a device on us that knew what medications we were taking, what foods we were eating and how often we were getting physical activity, then we would have a very good sense of how it is those things affect our body for the most part. Right. But the problem is, do we want one person essentially, <laughs> or a very small group of people or a corporation having all of that data about everybody? Do we trust them? Uh, to make good use of the data and not use it to maximize profitability in their relationship with us, as opposed to maximize our health. Right. right. I, I kind of I wanted people to be able to, you know, um, control their own data and only have people like only share the, the their private key um, with people uh, or not share their private key, but <clears throat> but um, you know, unlock that data with their private key. Uh, to to some people, to some subset of people, so that that subset of people could run a study, for instance, and 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 you could still be anonymized while doing it, to a degree or, or to whatever degree that you choose. You could you know share some sort of subset of your data. So this is a problem that I've been thinking about. So I'm gonna, you know, I, I kind of want to set the stage there because we're we're going in, we're we are moving into that era, right? Like. Can we do this in a decentralized way? Is that where you're going? I mean, at, at the risk of deviating a little out of the way, you know, speaking of having the information and not just giving it into one big monolith, one of the way that Brave's ad system was supposed to work was that since you're using their browser, your browser sees all the websites you visit. You visit. And so the Brave browser would request ads based off what you browse. And that's actually a very different model than how it works with, you know, with a lot of these big ad networks, because the idea was let the user level deal with the information. And again, at the risk of an even further deviation, you know, that's something I think AI models will have an interesting role to play because then you can have, you know, your own locally trained model that gives the insights because that's what we want. We want the insights to go all the way up to, you know, whatever the public, you know, infrastructure is to, to gain advantage out of those things. And that's a really handy thing. In my opinion, what makes encryption really important is when you want something to be private. You don't want, you know, insights to be gleaned from your private communications. You don't want um, people having control over what can be said uh, when you're interacting, you know, with people you know and trust. And so I make a distinction myself between what I call, you know, private systems, which is intuitive there. But then I also call things broadcast systems. So like, for instance, Twitter, social media, you know, YouTube, if you're or even a website, if you're throwing something in, a, in the public, 
a lot of encryption is kind of unnecessary. Even HTTPS, the purpose of it really is to say this site is actually that site. It's not necessarily so that, you know, <laughs> other things can be done, but there are other, you know, networks uh, like I2P and Tor if you do want that on a anonymization while browsing. Yeah, and it feels more and more to me like this is becoming important on a level of not just freedom of speech, but freedom of thought. Right, right. Uh, you, and when you talk about private communications, we're not talking about somebody um, standing up in the public square. Right. <laughs> and making a declaration as to what they believe or some philosophical statement that they want the whole world to think about necessarily. We're even talking about what it is that you tell your buddy Bob. Right. Uh, exactly. you know, the, the, we're getting to a level that is almost as private as your interpersonal thoughts, not quite the same level, not until they not until somebody says, oh, I'm going to try to implant chips in people's brains. <laughs> uh, God forbid we ever get there. Yeah, I mean, brain transparency is terrifying, but, you know, I'm focused a little bit on what can we do on the hardware level to bring, you know, some of that back. You know, how can we get some of that? privacy back. And I do think something as simple as like I mentioned in a previous show about how people should have their own digital infrastructure. And then if you run your own VPN for your family, you know, the same way you run, you know, companies run their own internal. Well, let's slow down for a second. Let's keep this at, at the level which uh, mom and pop can and <laughs> glean uh, uh, more information. VPN. Yes. Uh, well, so, so there are virtual private networks, which you know, most people know of VPNs in this case that there's NordVPN where you connect to and it connects you to the rest of the Internet. But you can use the same technology to run a private network just within machines, you know, you control or with people, you know, and those resources, because VPNs themselves are encrypted, will use that encryption to protect whatever you want. So say you have, you know, your own internal, you know, online library or online chat services with just people in your trust network, having an internal private network will do that. And VPNs allow you to do it over the internet, as opposed to having to say, run your own cables between everyone's houses. So I'm at home. Let's say that uh, I contract with you as my VPN provider. Then I and I want to uh, find out what's on ESPN, and uh, you know maybe uh, uh, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't do this, but uh, let's say that I'm going to ESPN porn, sports porn. Mm. I don't want anyone to know that I'm searching sports porn. Uh, then what I do is I send that request through you. And then you send the request to the website so that anybody who sees that transmission going on doesn't see me to ESPN sports porn. They see, they see this one central server to ESPN sports porn. And then you communicate with me directly privately. Okay. But, but do you know what, what it is that I'm surfing? That, I mean, anyone who has access to a layer of your internet infrastructure will be able to see some of that because I know it's, for instance, easy for your provider to know what websites you're visiting because you have DNS queries. Now, you can encrypt DNS queries. There's, you know, DNS over HTTPS. So how that would effectively work is that if the person providing your network infrastructure knows, say, oh, this guy is connected to this IP, they can do a reverse lookup. And so depending on the level of effort, there are ways to investigate 
these kinds of questions, which is why I will say it is a matter of trust. Unless we have what I would almost consider the gold standard of some kind of absolutely neutral public infrastructure, there will always be a trust component at play. Now you say a public infrastructure. Um, you know, already <laughs> that, that's, that's a big, yeah, neutral, right, yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure that, that, I, that I think that that exists, but um, the, the Bitcoin network solution, right. where you have sort of multiple validators, um, is there the possibility of decentralizing that level of trust to a network so that you don't have one point of failure? I mean, the thing that st stands out to me is there is a project called Helium that tries to tokenize connectivity. So, for instance, whether it's devices using, you know, something as simple as a 5G data connection for a cell phone in the area. What it allows is that people are incentivized to run data through the system. The challenge I see with many of these different things is that making the network more complex does not necessarily make it more private. And there are a ton of different considerations to be made when it comes to if we do this change, how does that affect these other considerations? You know, how does it impact privacy? How does it impact, you know, autonomy and these kind of controls? I do think at the lowest level, you want to have as few intermediaries as possible. So if there was, you know, say one giant uh, token based way of distributing internet in that way, if the providers themselves aren't colluding against you, you know, that that's probably a perfectly valid way of doing it. I just personally, one of the things I think Bitcoin has over other attempts at tokenizing resources is at least has 10 years of history to say, hey, we've done it and nothing crazy has gone wrong. I think it would be hard to convince people to switch all their internet to, you know, say Helium, which may not have the same, you know, track record behind it, so to speak. Right. Before people do that, it would it would require a multi-year history of, be, of people being able to say, well, this thing has never been hacked. To whatever degree Bitcoin has been hacked, it's always been through uh, somebody interfacing with it in a poor way. Um, or in a vulnerable way, not the system itself being hacked. Um, but uh, is there anybody making an attempt to start building that track record? Uh, are you saying are you saying that people are people using this helium system right now? Is it building a track record? I would say it is, though I haven't watched it too closely. I mean, it's operational. I knew a, knew a guy who was running one of their. Uh, they call them gateways to mine the helium currency. And it does look like an interesting project. Now, some people kind of want to do things without changing the infrastructure too much. You know, there's LokiNet, there's Urbit, I think is a, a similar type of project where there are a lot of things where it's like we can either build on top of the Internet as it exists or we do something completely new. And I don't know how effective the completely new options will be because then it just introduces a lot of complexity that people aren't used used to thinking about okay let's let's return for a moment back to end-to-end -to -end encryption so i i'm i'm a fan of uh the signal app and i don't know how many other similar apps there are it's the kind of system where you probably don't want too many because you want people to be on the same app in order to have this end-to-end uh, -end encryption. What's the other one that you mentioned? Well, there's uh, WhatsApp. Matrix. Uh, WhatsApp does it 
as well, though they're tr run by Facebook, so not everybody trusts WhatsApp for themselves. Um, but then both Matrix and XMPP run end-to-end -end encryption through different methods, but it's the same idea. The advantage with both Matrix and XMPP is you have your own client, whatever you want. Telegram does support end-to-end -end encryption. You just have to turn it on, and that's kind of its problem. It's not there by default, and I believe Telegram also rolls their own, which cryptographers will complain is not the best way of doing it. You should use some kind of industry standard instead of just hoping your engineers can figure it out. I mean, maybe they can. I'm not knocking them, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a complicated work, that's for sure. Right, and... Uh already you have sort of a conflict of interest there in terms of them wanting to figure it out. Right. And, you know, to me, one of the things that I find interesting right now is that there are all these different services, whether it's Noster, whether it's Matrix, whether it's XMPP, whether it's the Fediverse, you've got all these different open protocols. You know, anybody can set up their own server and get connected with them. The challenges is when there's interoperability there, you know, say somebody on Noster can talk to somebody on XMPP, that goes through a bridge. And the bridge kind of breaks whatever standard encryption everyone using on one system that doesn't exist on the other. And it would be nice if there were plugins that say if you have two people on different systems using the same end-to-end -end encryption, there should be a way to intermediate that. Okay. Here's one of the worries that I have with some encryption going through other people's systems uh, is that uh, encryption... like. You could say, okay, there are numbers being chosen at random. There's random number generation that happens in most, most or all encryption processes, right? You have to start with some sort of a number that is being pushed through this complicated mathematical algorithm that spits out another number. Uh, but, but a number that's being chosen, there's a seed. And with something like... Uh, with, with a lot of systems, you have sort of a system of looping back and reusing a seed to then churn through again. So it only really matters the very first time you choose a number often. Right. But um, how are random numbers, like a lot of people don't know this necessarily, but random numbers are not random. A computer can't do that. A computer has to start at one place, you know, when it applies some sort of a randomization algorithm and because of that there have been hacks on some systems that seemed otherwise mathematically impenetrable so how like where does that problem occur in the system and how can we avoid that well a lot of that's in the hardware itself you know the cpu you know a lot of it is very opaque to most people you know your cpu really is a black box whether it's in your phone or whether it's in your computer nobody's got to open it up and with the little magnifying lens take a look hey what's going on there and it's, it's a very complicated task which is why i do think the concept of free and open source hardware is going to be probably a big gold mine over the next 10 years because a lot of people are asking those very questions, you know, when there's a piece of hardware, whether it's a CPU or even a modem, you know, those are the big ones that make people nervous these days because, you know, the modem itself can forward information along and that makes encryption useless, which is what they're doing. And I believe it's either the UK or the EU where they're like, oh, we want client side scanning. You know, we're not going to break your encryption, but we just want to check all the images on your device against the table of hashes we have to you know prosecute people over and that make that does make encryption useless there's no point to run encryption if you're gonna let the government or other entities scan everyone's devices proactively
this uh, makes me think back to the movie Gremlins, uh, which was it was a childhood movie for me. I don't know. Did you, did you ever see the movie Gremlins? Yes. Yes. So, and, and I haven't watched it in so long that, that uh, I, I can't remember the situation, but there was somebody in the small town who already knew what gremlins were. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he was like a veteran or something like that. And I can't remember if it was like, you know, Vietnam or Japan, but he was like, oh, there's gremlins in the watches. There's gremlins everywhere. And, and you know, so it, I, I guess that, that's sort of an analogy for how it is that people can think about hardware like you really don't know who set up the hardware for you or who might have put, you know, some there was a rumor just like three, four years ago about there being like, you know, uh, rice size grain computer chips that, you know, nobody knew what they did. You open up hardware and there was this thing that wasn't supposed to be there. Right. And and, you know, some of that is probably nonsense and some of it. But some of it is a very real concern that that somewhere in a supply process, supply chain process where all these pieces are coming from different places being manufactured around the world and they're coming to one place and then being put together. And how do you know that somebody doesn't have something riding, you know, on, on the system or at the final production level, something extra getting added to it, that would take a, it would take a great feat of engineering, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Right. And, and that's really is scary because I know somebody I follow who is a friend of mine. He basically wrote a blog post about how he's giving up. He thinks uh, all of technology is unsavable. He wants to go totally analog because of these very concerns, which are real concerns. It's, it's, it, there's not no validity to that. I just think there's a lot of opportunity to fix it as time goes on. Yeah, I like to uh, maintain the uh, optimist's perspective. Um, I do think that that it's very possible that we see a world in which um, we make use of computer resources for some fraction of what it is that we want to use them for, right? Like we, we identify the utilities, um, you know, in our life or to society that we need computers for, but we otherwise give them up for a lot of things. Uh, there's a, a movie. I can't remember if it's the movie or the television show. There's a, a television show called Firefly from something like 20 years ago. And there's a movie associated with it called Serenity. And in in one of the two, I think the movie, there's a scene that cuts to one of the character's childhoods. The character is a doctor. He's like, you know, like top notch, uh, you know, award winning type of, you know, he, he was clearly a high academic mind growing up and a very responsible person. Right. And you have this scene in childhood where he's maybe 14 years old and his father gives him a dedicated source box. Mm. And he's so happy because what he wants is to make it to an elite university because he really he wants to be a doctor. And, and, you know, he's just one of those people who has his dream already when he's 14. So he's mapping it out and he's working hard toward it. Right. Um, And. You never, it's never explained to you what a dedicated source box is, but you kind of get the sense that he's talking about the internet, mm. right? This is a future in which people have figured out, okay, we have this internet thing, but it's a really terrible idea to put this in the hands of most children, <laughs> right? And, right? And I, I could see that. I could see a future in which, um, you know, maybe 90 95, 99% of what we do on the internet, we just decide not going to do that anymore. It's too dangerous. One, it's too dangerous to have, um, you know, 
boxes all over our house where children can surf porn, where children can figure out how to surf porn. And it, it is true that some huge proportion of internet traffic is porn. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, a lot of people underestimate the poison that that likely is to all of society. We probably don't even know. Um, we, we probably couldn't even spot the little influences. It's probably kind of like chaos theory, like a butterfly flaps its wings and suddenly, you know, there's chaos on the other side of the earth. I think that that's probably more likely to be a correct analogy for people surfing porn at home. And, you know, that's the butterfly flapping its wings. But then does that have an effect on what bills get passed in Congress? I, I you know, I, I bet it does. Uh, you know, everything that, that happens in society uh, is downstream of something. It's downstream of human behaviors. So I could see um, I could see a future in which we dodge a lot of the worst uses of technology and then we're not even worried anymore about people intercepting our communications. We don't necessarily have to communicate to thousands of people at a time. <laughs> there isn't much need, you know, most knowledge can get passed through the grapevine and, you know, conversations in real life where people get together in order to have conversations. <laughs> um, so, it, it, you know, how, how much, you know, what what do we do on the internet that that's really necessary? Well, I mean, a lot of it's been trained into us. You know, the companies that wanted to profit off collecting marketing based off and now training AIs based off people's information. There was a real drive to get you, hey, hand this out, you know, whatever. You know, Facebook would introduce a cool new feature. Oh, you checked in at this location. Tell everyone what you think about it. You know, there was a lot of incentivization and pushing or nudging, as I guess we would say, to nudge people into giving out as much as possible. And I do think a big part of it, though, is when you create these micro celebrities, whether, you know, it's the, the biggest YouTuber or the biggest uh, Twitch streamer, it presents a lifestyle that, you know, first of all, not everybody can do. Not everybody can become the top Twitch streamer, you know, whatever. But all the imitations of it, all the people trying, now I wish everybody, you know, the best of luck when trying that kind of thing out. But then, you, people don't necessarily realize that, hey, there's only so many tickets to that ride. And then they're still giving the same information, you know, and that's a trade-off. And I, I want people to think about this. When thinking about what, you know, if we move toward a future where we tear down a lot of what the internet is because of security, and I think that we might, I think perhaps even we should. I, I think that computing is awesome there is high utility that we want to figure out how not to give up. And then we want to figure out how it is we want to organize society. Um, but what we're talking about, like an, an internet star, um, and, you know, I, I look around, we've probably got, a, you know, a few dozen uh, live watchers. And maybe, you know, uh, two, three, four thousand people will see this video at some point in time. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're not we're not internet celebrity stardom here. But what does happen is you wind up with parasocial relationships. And uh, one of the points that I've made in a lot of my articles is these parasocial relationships. This is where societal steering is happening to a large degree. You have somebody who becomes good at generating parasocial relationships. They're good at 
at talking directly to the camera. They're good at all the little things that go on. Um, you know, they, they have a look that fits their, that fits whatever it is they're selling. And, uh, you know, suddenly you have massive, uh, massive nudging going on, nudging to many people at once. And so it becomes profitable to corrupt the system through one individual. And I, I think a big part of that too, though, is that there is a real fragmentation in culture right now. I just saw somebody post a, you know, post about the trust in the media is highly partisan. You know, people will trust certain outlets and they won't trust others. And this is creating this effect where there's no one common fabric. And I think, you know, whatever the power structure is, it wants to herd everyone back onto a single fabric. Whereas anyone who justifiably doesn't trust this process is, oh, no, I just want my own little island of coherence. And they don't want to, you know, be assimilated into this greater context that really isn't serving anybody's interests. And the only way I see that being solved is if there is a new common fabric that does suit people without being overtly tyrannical or other, you know, problematic features. Yeah, it seems like uh, we had, because of mass communication, we entered an era in which fabric of society meant accepting one common truth. And I actually don't think that that needs to happen. I actually think fabric of society can be one common set of general manners. Like, you know, the, the way it is that you're not going to aggress on somebody or, or treat somebody, but that otherwise there is no particular need for a uh, common set of beliefs, like whether or not uh, uh, you or I both have the same view on whether or not um, viruses are real, <laughs> viruses, <laughs> viruses are real. or, you know, uh, that, that uh, the CIA murdered uh, John F. Kennedy or right. that the moon landing was faked or whatever. And, you know, I, I could, I could pick out these, uh, these things that are within the realms of speculation or hidden information. Uh, that, that some people denigrate as conspiracy theory or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly you have truths where if you even um, begin to discuss them or question them, uh, you have an automatic stigma associated. And I think that that's, that's one big problem right there. But even just the attempt to have one common truth, like what, what, why is it that everybody needs to believe that same thing in order to go about their daily lives? They, they don't, honestly. They don't. And, you know, to me, it's an interesting thing because you're right that the conversations that people are almost being pushed to have are combative inherently because you're forcing everybody to discuss this issue when people with different perspectives will have, you know, honestly, different shorthands for things. I've, I've been called on many times when I say, you know, a particular phrase, there's like a ton of ideas associated with that. You know, when I say we only have one timeline, I'm actually not just asserting the fact that, oh, you know, there's only one trend through history. I'm also talking about the idea that we can't go back and test every different hypothetical situation throughout history, because as far as I know, we only have one timeline. And that shorthand is, you know, creates the Tower of Babel effect where people are talking different languages because they all have different shorthand based off what subcultures they're a part of. And like you say, when you force everybody into this one giant vat of soup basically to have those conversations they will become combative because they'll fight for you know dominance in that system and so how do you de-escalate that so that nobody has to fight 
Right. And a lot of a lot of that shorthand is uh, is actually uh, it's in group testing. <laughs> There's a cost associated with it. Right. There's a cost of in group testing and validation of of uh, that. That's a form of sort of public private key in a sense, linguistically. And mm. that, you know, if you're going to be in my sphere, you have to pass this test. But if everybody's at the power of ba- Tower of Babel, then everybody is in each other's sphere. And suddenly they're all up in each other's faces and you've created this situation where the weight of all of that um, becomes perhaps more than the, the walls can bear and it all comes crashing down. So, you know what? Uh, I, I didn't know that we were going to get this <laughs> philosophical about this, but I actually think that that getting this level of philosophical is where the technology conversation actually needs to be. Because we, we do have a certain number of problems that we probably simply cannot solve, right? You have a friend who's just like, I give up, <laughs> yep. right? Uh, and and, you know, uh, and I, I get that. Like, I don't, I, I never want to be the fatalist. Uh, and, and I don't believe in the fatalistic future. I, I am an optimist. I do think that these problems are going to come, come to a head and it might be an ugly head but that they will come to a head and then humanity will get past them. But I think that it is more likely than not that we think through what things we can tolerate and live with and give people asymmetric power advantages, right? right. What, you don't, what you never want with the Tower of Babel, whether or not it collapses, is one person listening to everyone or one person influencing everyone. Right. And, you know, to me, to get back to somebody just being fatalistic about this stuff, I am a big fan of incremental progress. I don't have the power to completely re-engineer society, nor do I want it. But I do think there's a lot people can do in their own lives, take step by step. Oh, I want this to be a little different. You make that change. Just because some problems are unsolvable, it doesn't mean that problems aren't worth solving. Right. And even something like... um... Bitcoin, which somebody might say, well, that's not an incremental step. That's a monumental step. <laughs> oh, but it involves the incremental step of, you know, some number of hundreds of millions or billions of people learning that system one by one. And even if it seems impossible at the very beginning, oh, you're never going to get everybody to relearn money. But you know what? Uh, reality has a funny way of uh, getting people to do things um, you know, for their own benefit, uh, one step at a time when they see it done, uh, when it becomes more ordinary, when it becomes, you know, normalized and, you know, normalization, well, that's a a psychological word that could be used for things that are improvements or that are bad. And, and maybe I'm wrong about Bitcoin. Maybe it is, it is something that would also have to be trashed in order for us to get back to, something ordinary. But I, I think that because of what it is, it, it doesn't need to be. It's not the it's it, it doesn't have the problems that we're talking about right now, uh, though. I, I suppose it could have the hardware problem. I personally have been very concerned of the hardware side when it comes to Bitcoin. You know, I mentioned on the other show that I am probably closer to the big blocker side of the spectrum just because I think hardware incentives are very difficult to align. I'll have to think that one through. Maybe we'll have a, a private <laughs> one day. Uh, static block size or variable, possibly growing 
block size for the blockchain. Um, it's a challenging conversation. It's one that I do not feel like I have a <laughs> solid enough grasp on to want to have a firm opinion. Well, I try not to be super dogmatic about things I'm not doing myself. You know, it's the kind of thing that if I was a core, you know, or, you know, different Bitcoin developer, I would certainly have stronger feelings about it. And the thing that I think is important for people to realize is kind of like what you said, where we don't all need to have the same tune when it comes to different issues. My personal preference is that we don't all have to use the same system. Some people like to use Matrix. Some people like to use XMPP. And I think that's as long as it suits them, that's perfectly fine. I just think in the dream state, it would be nice if there was a way to bridge those things without sacrificing privacy, though there will always be trade-offs. Uh, yeah, uh, agreed. Agreed. Um, so... Uh, Hmm. Now, now I'm in a place of like deep thought, but you know, you, you, you've brought me to this point where I feel like, oh, I, I may have hours of thinking before I want to come back and ask uh, the, the next set of questions. Um, but I, I, so ha have we talked about the things that you wanted to come talk about today? Or is there a another topic that we can just? Yes, actually, move? Okay. Let, since let's you're do that then because you, you've got me on like a path of of deep thought where I want to come back and finish this conversation another day, but go ahead. Since you're stronger in the math space, I'd be curious on your thoughts or even thoughts you've come across regarding this, because right now the U S cybersecurity bill, something went down the pipe and they want every aspect of the federal government to implement post quantum encryption. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. So if quantum computers are becoming online and we're stopping to roll back, who, who wants everyone to adopt post quantum encryption? It was it was some Biden, uh, you know, administration proposal. I don't know if it was a bill or an executive order or something, but there was something put through that they want the entire federal government to roll it out. And to me, this is like almost a terrifying signal. Oh shoot, they've broken it already. Which I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not accurate. But the thing is, is I did a bit of a deep dive on. Okay, are there open source post quantum? Um, implementations available right now. They exist, but they're slim and not maybe production ready yet. Okay, well, I wanted let's, to pick... let's stop here and define quantum encryption and post-quantum encryption. Right. So post-quantum is a different set of algorithms because I don't know much about the cryptography side of this, which is what I wanted to ask you. But my understanding is that as quantum computers gain more qubits and can run these different algorithms that have already been written for them, there is the capability to not only break encryption moving forward, but also break everything that was encrypted in the past. You know, when Langley stores everyone's communication through the NSA, suddenly all of that can be broken retroactively if okay. this is such a game changer. Okay, so <laughs> this is, I, I think this is actually a giant psyop. Let's talk about this for a second. Okay, okay. There, there are people out there who go, oh, quantum computers are going to break all of encryption, blah, 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 blah. I, and and it, it, it frustrates me. I, I bite my tongue every time I see this conversation. I want to, like, dive into, like, you know, every chat online. Like, like this person does not know what quantum computing is. Okay. Uh, quantum computing is not going to ever break uh, elliptical cryptography. And what this is, the, the, whatever it is the Biden administration is announcing is probably a giant boondoggle 
but or and or and or it is a matter of the intelligence agencies um, getting their claws on all of the government to have all of the information swept into them. That's what I would suspect. And I'll explain why. If like within a quantum computer, within a system, sure, having these uh, quantum states and uh, and, you know, seeking wave convergence, you know, when, when you're locking on to an answer to a, a difficult math problem. OK, yeah, within the system, there are things that you can do that you couldn't have done without that system. But that has nothing whatsoever to do with breaking encryption systems as they are today. And here's why. No matter what that wave function is doing, you still have to test a key over here on this computer that is outside of that system. And that can only happen discreetly, as in one set of packets gets sent, answer gets sent back, did or did not break. It's still a brute force thing, no matter what is going on in this quantum computer. Right? Uh, imagine, imagine simply that you have uh, a quantum brain. In fact, go a, go a, a, a step further. Go as many steps further as you can. You have a God brain or something like that. Um, you know, however you want to define it, but it doesn't mean, uh, you know, whatever it is you can do in that amazing brain, that doesn't mean that you can enter keys into a computer any faster. And literally, that it's actually a physically, mathematically limiting problem. Uh, I wrote an article, um, maybe December or January, uh, Monkeys on Typewriters. Okay. Yes, uh, I, I remember. And maybe I'll go find that one because uh, it relates to what we're talking about. Um, there is still the physical limitation of how much energy gets used in that process and how much time that process will take. So, you know, a, a elliptical curve... Uh, you know, a, a elliptical cryptography, which is where we are right now, um, that's not ever going to be hacked unless it is within the quantum computer itself. Now, maybe we we get into uh, simulation theory or something like that. <laughs> simulation theory is just like a it, it's a useless exercise. Like, I mean, it's a fun exercise cool. to think through, but whatever it is, it's still the case that within this simulation. You know, we have no reason to believe that uh, that each piece of it contains, you know, uh, super knowledge of other pieces that are in a separate place. I, I like well, yeah. the, the reason why I bring it up, because I notice right now that there's a really useful trend that I think actually helps. You know, they're trying to push people onto past keys where you use, say, a YubiKey, which is just a hardware device that you plug in. It signs, you know, what it's it's like a Bitcoin hardware wallet where it does the challenge and response for the encryption. I well, think that's a, a Bitcoin hardware wallet is like it. Well, that's yeah, a exactly. general thing. <laughs> um, you, you've got a physical device. You plug it into a computer. It has your keys on it for you. Because memorizing 36 digit strings of letters and numbers isn't what most of us do with our <laughs> spare time. And, and I think it's it's an excellent idea because you take the concept of an air gap, you know, a computer that's not connected to the Internet, but then you just strip out all the parts that you just want for key management. You really just need it to be able to plug in and say, hi, I'm the key signer, you know, whatever. And then uh, you, you, you go on your merry way. Why I, why I was curious about quantum 
uh, post-quantum encryption because I don't have the math background to know how big of a game changer it was or might not have been. And would that mean we just simply need longer keys? Would that mean we do need some kind of crypt? you know, uh, post-quantum hardware device that has a different mechanism. So if it is just merely the encryption itself being sound, that's almost a reassurance. No, it, 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 it's amazing watching this. And this is this is a good lesson for anybody who might be out there thinking this problem through. I don't know if what I said was uh, understandable uh, to a large audience, um, but I think so. Like, it, it is actually a relatively simple thing to think about. It doesn't matter what fancy computation is going on in the quantum computer. It, there is still a limitation of how many packets of information get sent back and forth. And that excess computation speed does not actually speed up those packets at all. So like in a brute forcing process, doesn't change anything. And there's no information from the uh, encrypted machine. You know, th th these are your secrets, tight fist. These are the secrets. And this <laughs> is the quantum computer over here. Um, you know, the quantum computer, the uh, uh, whatever is being processed in the quantum computer really actually has nothing to do with, with the machine that's holding your secrets. The quantum computer knows nothing more about, you know, the, the cryptography algorithm or, uh, you know, the, your key or anything else. It, it's still, you know, whatever it's computing has nothing to do with whether or not you can send packets back and forth to test different passwords and you don't get any new information. There's no new information. If I test a key, some, you know, random key to try to break into to your vault, and and I, I just get a signal back, success or failure. It's like, how do you process that to compute anything? There's no information. It's it's zero information exchanged. It's well, just how fast you can test. I'd, I'd also point out, um, have you heard of a rainbow table? <clears throat> What's a rainbow table? So a rainbow table is something, so when somebody hacks a site, whether they hack Facebook and they get their database and they hack, you know, some other site, they get their database, they'll have the passwords and their hashes. And what that means is that, so, so the hashes are a way of the sites protecting your password. Cause if you get, if that site gets hacked and it's your password, then they can log into all the other websites with your password. So the industry standard is that you hash it so that it's not your password. It's just another random string based off, you know, these kind of encryption methods. The problem with this, though, is that there are pre-computed hashes put in these rainbow tables, which are, OK, this is the hash. Here is the answer. And, you know, you have this huge table of that. And this is the seed problem we were discussing. This is, right. I'm, I'm, I'm going there. And so the problem, I think, that post, you know, quantum computers will present is that it, they may be faster at generating these tables. I don't know. And that's the threat mechanism that intuitively makes the most sense to me based off how I understand they work, which is not very solid, I will admit. Okay. So it, it does present uh, a challenge for... <sighs> this still just seems like a problem of collecting hash information. Right. Which isn't that's still not internal to a quantum computer, but is a quantum computer going to be able to now I, I still think that hash information is still just the same thing as getting the packet back that says success or failure. But if if everybody if everybody's if the hashes are applied to everybody in the same way then you can eventually collect a lot of information that may tell you how you're going to proceed with the hash. So I'll think about that. Uh, well, 
the thing that I find interesting about this is that when we're talking about quantum computing, you know, your average, you know, hacker on the internet is not going to have those kind of resources, even anytime soon, you know, this is nation state level stuff. And so when it comes to quantum computing, I think the aspect of it that is most interesting is how it will play into geopolitical events. Because say, even they, you know, may not be able to break encryption, but if they can use techniques like that to you know, discover patterns. That's a very valuable tool in this kind of global cyber warfare game, which is one of the disasters they plan on, you know, they have signaled that they will use to try to gain more control. And so I'm personally very worried that they will try to say that the internet is basically a battleground. And kind of like you said, how there's a healthy way people can withdraw from the internet and find their own healthy balance with, you know, what they you know, can have a healthy life with. I feel like there's also the turbo opposite where the plan is basically is that they will want to have complete control because it's now a strategic resource and having people sucked into the matrix is one of those strategic resources in the greater geopolitical games. Right. And this is, um, and this is where fifth generation warfare is taking place. And it keeps people from having the same levels of local trust outside of it once they leave, right? You, you leave the internet, you have a different idea of, as to who your friends and enemies are. Yeah, even worse, uh, you have the, uh, we'll, we'll insert Matthias Desmond here, uh, even though I, I'm not a fan of his theory on the whole, but uh, I'm, I'm a fan of thinking about free-floating anxiety and free-floating stresses. Right. Um, you know, you, you come away thinking there are enemies out there, but you don't even know who they are. And I think this keeps people from gathering in groups locally. It keeps people from walking to the local pub necessarily and, you know, being able to have a conversation with people because you now have to be more guarded about your conversations, just whatever it is you might think about the world than you used to have to be. Yeah. Because People have taken their interactions from the matrix and they have, you know, it, it is the Tower of Babel, like we said. Yeah, they, they have created their own uh, language with which to test anyone entering their bubble. Yeah, and I, I feel that on a real, you know, when I talk to anyone who's significantly older than me, there is a real disconnect where I'm like, we did not live in the same world growing up. You know, it's like, I don't believe I, I grew up in the same world as, you know, say my grandparents, you know, it's like, it is really night and day. And, you know, I used to wonder how much, whether it's accelerating or not, like whether say somebody, you know, my, someone, my grandchildren's age kind of, you know, in eventuality. And I don't think it's slowed down currently. Honestly, I do think I may be as out of touch with the state of reality for my grandchildren as I, you know, grandparents would be for me. Hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't know where this conversation would go or what it would make me think about, but I am, I'm thinking about the possibility of the whole world rebelling by saying, we're going to use computers to do fewer things. We're going to define what those things are. And, uh, and, and maybe the definitions of those things are where we don't have to worry about the more significant problems of of you know a, a chip being inserted somewhere in the supply chain that automatically leeches, you know, asymmetrically gathers information for you know one giant actor. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are, there are only a few places in the world where like ASICs 
are even built, right? There's only a few places, I mean, technically, there's only a few places in the world where computer chips are made. Um, you, know, if, uh, you have to have clean floor, um, you're handling a lot of chemicals. These are toxic chemicals. You've got to be able to ventilate in a responsible way. So, you know, maybe there are just a few dozen, few dozen factories in the world that even make computer chips. And the number that make these ASIC processors that are used for just hashing, like would be used to generate the Bitcoin network. Um, I don't even know what the number is. Is it, is it two? Is it three? Certainly not many, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and, and this is where you could have the possibility um, of somebody inserting something in there and, and maybe they can, hmm, this is something we're thinking through. Yeah, we, you know, we were, we started this conversation with like end to end encryption and just like <laughs> how do we protect our information from chats, but that's the, that's where the exploration gets us, where we have to think on a hardware level. So I, I, I'm going to rewind the conversation then. Uh, my hope is that we are able to make use of mass pools of data. But my worry is that the way that we have gone currently is that that data is dramatically centralized. And we don't even know the degree to centralization, right? I mean, we do know that there are probably 10 to 20 corporations out there who have massive pools of data. Maybe it's like a power law distribution, you know, who knows who has the most data, if it's Apple or Facebook or Google, uh, probably Google, I would think. Um, but whoever has like the, the greatest amount of data, <clears throat> or it, actually, it's probably the government. Right. I don't know why I said Google. That makes no sense. It's probably the U.S. government. Well, um, yeah. Uh, so we have these massive pools of data, and that should worry people. It should. should worry people because it gives uh, a very small people a high degree of control about what's going on, or the or possibly the internet warfare era that we're seeing, where just like everything is like bullets and, and sharp knives going back and forth, um, maybe that's actually the necessary defense that your second, third, or fourth corporation on the totem pole would have to play in order to not have an asymmetric, like a winner-take-all advantage mm -hmm. over that system. Is there necessary sort of like a combat of the mind, like, you know, uh, death by a trillion or a quadrillion cuts, right? Um, effect going on with the internet on the psyche of the average person making use of it because of this. So where am I going with this? Um, well, I think they absolutely benefit from the control side of it. And in a geopolitical game, it may be seen as a fair trade. Oh, we get to keep our way of life. And sorry, we have to do this to you. Um, but the other side of it is on top of the, the way you said, like, oh, it would be nice if we had a different, you know, way of managing the data. I would argue if we were truly using this data for, you know, something to actually help people as opposed to wage these kind of, you know, control war games, I believe the data itself, we would have different data being collected. You know, for instance, you know, a lot of these Fitbit trackers, they're neat, but I don't know how comprehensive that is for actually building healthier and happier people. As far as I can tell, your heart rate is really just a good proxy for your emotional state, which having that on a good you know, segment of the population as you roll out these mass fear campaigns would be a really effective information to have, especially in real time as you're doing it. 
Whereas I think if there was this more holistic approach to people voluntarily choosing what's shared and there being more information on how it's being used and techniques to use it properly, things would go very differently. And an, an example of this is I think this is, again, where I think AI models may actually have a real legitimate use because a lot of things are individualized. You know, if you're training data to work with, say, somebody's ability to run faster, as a silly example here, I can see a scenario where the data that's like every other runner throughout history can only help you so much because you're a different being than all those other runners. And so a model that's trained to suit you would be something, first of all, you'd want to keep very private because that's very sensitive information. But if you're going down that road, you would still have insights to share to the brighter, wider community. But that's something you want control of, not something you want, you know, imposed on people. And suddenly there are these individual models that are just a representation of you to this terrifying system. Interesting. Have you ever uh, seen, uh, do you know who Hussein Bolt is? Yes. Uh, there's an article that somebody wrote a few years ago saying um, that if you looked at running performance under a certain model and we, we can see like the records getting uh, better and better, like uh, rate of running the 100 meter dash or 200 or 400 meter dash has been going up historically, the fastest runner in the world. And then if you plotted that, uh, you know, as a certain function and and you get sort of like limiting returns, right? We're never going to see any human at least as we define humans uh run a 200 meter dash in five seconds right uh, it's going to be you know getting better than 20 seconds is real difficult real difficult uh but that hussein bolt already was faster than the models predicted any human would ever be wow uh, which was really really fascinating <laughs> right you, you have such an outlier case um and then uh, somebody studied you know, who was it who would set these records over the years? One of the things that they noticed was it was it was generally a younger brother in a large family. <laughs> and I can't remember where Hussein Bolt is, but my my fuzzy memory is that he was like the seventh child. Right. Mm -hmm. He had all these older siblings uh, growing up in Jamaica, uh, you know, and, and it, in the neighborhood, you know, I'm sure you've got, you know, your 20 kids who get together and play soccer or run around and do whatever, whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And so when you have like the, the youngest one, in order to even participate, they're having to run faster. They're having, right. like, you know, from the age of like three, <laughs> right. That kid is having to um, exercise and learn a different level of movement than almost any other human will ever even think about and they they're putting their whole heart into it because that three-year-old wants to be with his older brothers right it's a good feeling right and, and so you know what i think that that we are likely going to find I, I think that we could almost skip to the end we're likely going to find that 99.99 percent of the information that we pass back and forth on the internet is completely useless at best so I, I think that you're going down the right path exploring this, but it may be it may be that for something like possible drug interactions, right? We did once upon a time find out that the bark of the chinchona tree in Peru or South America, several places in South America, now they've got you know, huge fields of them in India where they make medicines out of them. Um, but that the bark of this one tree 
would help with malaria or similar or things that cause similar symptoms, you know, fever, such things that you could grind it up, maybe take it, you know, uh, take it like a tea or something like that. And that would help people maybe, maybe just prevent deaths period at times. Right. You know, what, what is it that we do when we, like, there are a lot of things that we can explore in the world, right? Can we grind up this plant, that plant? Will, will it uh, help us avoid certain illnesses that, that are just, you know, mosquitoes are going to be there. I actually think that it, that it's almost folly to even think about trying to like make the mosquitoes extinct because with the technology that they're using to try to do that gene drive editing, well, that's the same technology that steers toward being able to edit human beings. Yeah. And then suddenly you've got asymmetric control over whether or not people even live or die. And that that's a real scary proposition. But if we were to just nuke most of the information on the internet and go back to thinking about, hey, you know, we do like uh, transmission of data, right? Um, maybe we should only do it when there is, when there is, when, when we have good control over the level of, of information that we're sharing, like as in everything from my end from my Fitbit, whatever it is, that not to even be made by anybody that we would pass our key to, or or to have good control over or what it you know how it's made, and and, and it could, and it could be so simple too, right? Kind of like thinking of a Raspberry Pi versus a computer. It may be checkable that this yeah. is not tampered with. If it's yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of keeping things simple that way, especially in the hardware domain, because. You know, smartphones are such a fantastic example where this has gone wrong because you have all these devices that are made useless. The moment their battery that, you know, is really difficult to replace goes, you know, kaput. Yes, there are ways to repair and replace them. And where possible, I recommend doing it. But the challenge is there is a ton of waste involved with these what I call omni devices. You know, really, in my opinion, a smartphone really should just be a you know touchscreen that acts as a remote for your other devices. To me, that is the optimal use of that interface because a lot of people are used to that and it does seem to actually help in a lot of scenarios. But the problem is when you pack on a big computer, you pack on, you know, all these surveillance devices, you know, the GPS, the, you know, the recording, the microphone, all of those could be external. We don't need devices that do everything. I think part of this model of how we get into a better, you know, balance with technology involves disintermediating the devices themselves. Now, I get that people prefer things to be wireless, but it is entirely possible to build a almost like, you know, I, they're wireless mice and keyboards. You could add different things to that protocol, and then you could keep that private by having some sort of encryption mechanism on those signals itself. So it could still be personal. It could still be convenient. But suddenly your microphone isn't, you know, built into every one of your devices. Your TV is spying on you. Your toaster is spying on you. You know, whatever. Let's go back to single-use appliances, single-use devices, and just take the lessons we've learned on how to make them more convenient. You know, NFC tags are actually kind of really interesting things on their own. They're just a little microchip RFID thing that you can attach as a sticker to something. And it says, you know, you can assign whatever arbitrary data you want to it, but then anything that can read it, figure out what it is. So a really simple example of how this could be leveraged that way is say you have, you know, this television in a room and, you know, if you've ever used Chromecast, you can put whatever video is on your phone on the television 
And with these kind of NFC tags, you could have the TV itself say, oh, I'm this is my. I'm this TV, this is my address. You tap, you know, your, what I would call remote instead of a smartphone, you would tap your remote to it and then say, okay, play this video now. And that doesn't need all this crazy spyware and tracking. And even honestly, some of the software overhead that exists with many of these devices, because you build things for a purpose. And then like you say, it's easier to verify it for that purpose instead of, oh, we've got this device that does everything and we need to verify it against X, Y, and Z now. And for those people out there who are not yet afraid that their TV is spying on them, <laughs> I, I have this to say. Today it's your TV, but but your your toaster, that's vicious. Your toaster handles your food. <laughs> it also has a really bad attitude. You're not used to you're not used to checking it. You're not used to talking with your toaster, but uh, you know, some something out there will will bite you in a different way that you might not even be thinking about right now with your information. Um, and the big example of that is everybody talking about uh, the thermostats being turned down because the region is like, oh, we need the electricity. We need to save on, you know, the climate. When you hand control over by building backdoors into systems, that is what will happen. They will use them to their benefit rather than the user's benefit. Right. And and you don't even know that they're going to use it to to save climate change, like, you know, that sounds like one of those things where, where you're getting like a 0.1% advantage. You know, a lot of people don't even know that it, 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 the vast majority of all the carbon that's produced is produced by governments and militaries. The, the, I, I shouldn't say vast majority, but the strict majority, the strict majority, like whatever they're doing in your home with your thermostat, that's, that's not what it's about. No, they are more likely probably to maximize their own profit level by futzing with your thermostat by then, uh, like if they need uh, excess factory production, if they need, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, load balancing in the electrical grid, that is much more likely what they will use that information for. Um, so yeah, you, you are giving up, you are letting someone maximize their profits off of you when you share your data. That's the way people should think about it. Or, or that that's one of the ways. Yeah, that, certainly knowing your thoughts is also another, right? And that, that's a big reason why I do try to push the, hey, it is good to be on even mind, moderately more secure platforms because the WHO put out this uh, document about how they called it uh, dark analytics, where they were looking at people's private chats on some of these platforms where it's easier. For instance, your text messages are not end-to-end -end encrypted in most cases. And they were using that as analytics as they were manipulating people with fear. And it's not going to be limited to that campaign. I can guarantee it. Yeah, even worse, uh, Signal recently stopped, uh, stopped being a, pla uh, a platform for SMS texting. Yes. Which forced people like me, I had to figure out exactly what I was going to do about this. I had 20 something thousand messages that then I had to figure out what app I was going to give access to. And I didn't, and you know, you don't have time to go through your 20 something thousand past messages and think about what information you want to add vulnerability to <laughs> in order to ever again use SMS texting. Right. Yeah. And when, you, when I started using signal, I never imagined that they would force me to make that decision. And so I, you know, you know, what can I do now? Can do I, do I just not have the opportunity ever again to use SMS texting? 
I know. I don't even know what thoughts I'm spilling out to a new app. That's right. that's awful. Right. And that's that's another challenge is that I find, you know, the open source community is kind of this like almost dirty secret to a lot of people where because everybody is used to the big tech platforms, there are options out there. But, you know, somebody will say, oh, but they're not perfect. And to be honest, they're not. You know, there are a lot of holes in many places. But I think the most important, whether it's hardware, whether it's software, is that mindset of can we verify it? Is it from, you know, built in a way that's verifiable, whether it's the hardware, whether it's the software? And is it working to our benefit? You know, is it my device? Can I repair it? Can I change what processes it's running? All those questions can only be done under these kind of more open models. Because honestly, you know, I'm sure there are very excellent products that promise, you know, a lot of security, but I would never trust a company to put my data over their business model. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's like, why would they do that? Right. Um, when it comes down to pure incentives, uh, yeah, uh, the person on the other side has no relationship with you other than their business model. Um, is there, has somebody developed anything like a simple aphorism uh, or a simple, a simple way to think about uh, where to identify your points of vulnerability? I have not seen that laid out in a comprehensive way because you generally have to make a lot of assumptions like, oh, do you have a smartphone? Oh, what smartphone do you have? That, that would be a useful tool, though I will say if that type of tool was created, people would be staggered at how much is given away by very innocuous things. I mean, God forbid you pull in the privacy policies of a bunch of different major services. That'll be a real interesting question, you know. So, okay, I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw out uh, an invention that I imagined a number of years ago. And I've, I've you know, I, I, I've since lost interest in even thinking about whether or not I would actually ever want to um, try to pursue this. But somebody out there has the capability that I do not. And so I'm going to throw it out there in this chat right now. Uh, when thinking about uh, centralization and when thinking about a moment like the pandemonium like all this chaos we've been in for the last three plus years. Um, I think about the ability to be able to pass electronic communications around, make sure that they get to where we want them to go without a centralized system or hub or something like that. And I imagine something like a BlackBerry. Imagine that you had a little device you could type into it. You have a little screen, maybe uh, you type, I, maybe I type you a message. And I hit go, but I don't want this to go through my Wi-Fi and onto the internet. Instead, what I want is for there to be like a mesh network. I what I want is for this to be encrypted. Then my neighbor has one of these too. Yeah, that's probably the first jump point that that my device communicates with my neighbor's device, and and my neighbor's device sends a ping back and says, "Got it." And suddenly, this message is it's looking for you right? It's jumping through other people's phones until it reaches you. I, I shouldn't say phone. I, I like, I, I think of this as another device. It's not a phone, right? This is, this is, it is only on a system that is entirely distinct from any networks that exist. You know, could that be made and marketed and used? Like what, what would it take? Personally, 
that is how the dark nets work on top of the internet, whether it's Tor or I2P. And really implementing it on the hardware layer would be a val very valuable thing to do. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's a matter of it catching on. And Meshtastic does try to do that, though, like any considered MeshNet in that way, it does require you to have the people around you, which is what brings this to the local picture. It really doesn't matter so much that if people halfway across the world think it's a great idea, if you can actually build it with the people around you, you could probably make at least Meshtastic work, but building these other networks, whether it's you know Tor, whether it's I2P, whether it's... Uh, there's this other interesting one. Freenet is another and LokiNet. There's 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 tons of them now. I think there's a lot of opportunity and possibilities. It's just we can't ignore hardware for much longer. And I'll admit that is probably the root of this discussion is that it's nice to talk about protocols. It's nice about what things can be done gradually, which I encourage, though hardware itself is very important. And I hope that as people start to care about this, the market incentives to produce verifiable hardware will start to align themselves in a better direction. It seems like an almost impossible problem to solve, though, when I hear about the difficulties that engineers had going from 10 nanometer chips to seven nanometer chips to five to four, right? These are like, these are such extraordinary leaps because the, uh, the level uh, you're trying to pack so many resistors into a computer chip, right? The level of, th there is a physical limitation, right? I mean, obviously at some point you've just got, you're at, the, you're at the atomic level, but already you have enough interaction at at that type of level that it's difficult to, to get smaller than four nanometer chips. Um, when I think about that, I actually think uh, this makes me optimistic that we can learn to evaluate hardware right? Because you can't hide anything, right? <laughs> There's only so much physical matter that comes in, in, in a box that we call a computer, right? There's only so much physical matter in there that can be checked. You know, at the very least, you can, you can probably get a sense of, of where it's made or what it's designed to do. So um, this is not an impossible problem to solve. Um, but I will say this, I do believe that that we may be leaving the era of mass electronics and just sort of like spamming our way to the electronic world. It may be that people um, come to understand that it's fine to have less Internet communication. It's fine to have less pa fewer packets of information and that uh, as we move toward cryptocurrency uh, systems, we're probably going to be spending money every time we send a packet of information anyway, maybe a small amount of money, but that may be a good limiter for us. Maybe a good idea to go ahead and accept that because it's going to um, keep us. It'll, it'll be the automatic, um, it, it'll be a medicine for the system in a sense, but it will keep us from just sending so much useless information over the internet and uh, especially allowing for the mass levels of asymmetric control uh, the matrix system that is built. And I, I actually wonder if, if there is some sort of a, you know, I, I don't know what this whole plan to mirror is about. There is some grand plan, you know, people, some people think that they have it figured out, 
the, the more I see, the more hypotheses I have, the more questions, the more models I have for what's actually going on. But it's very possible that it simply breaks down into um, less information, less communication over the internet and people having to sort that out locally. So um, I, I kind of hope so. I think we'll, we'll eventually reach that stage one way or another. I think that there is a path that doesn't require us to give up computing, right? I, I don't think that that's necessary. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's necessary to reach privacy again and to reach health again. But we need to continue to have these conversations and we need to continue to figure out what can be done and what can't and test, test those models, see what works. Yeah, lot, lots of open questions there. Well, anything else before we wrap things up? That's all I have. I mean, I would say on top of there's there's two sides of the coin. There's there's keeping it local, though. I will say the fact that humanity across the you know whole world can communicate. I do think that is a very valuable thing. And like you said, there's a difference between the mass, you know, redundant information. Useless might be a little harsh, but I'll say redundant. And then, you know, but the ability to talk across the world and say, hey, my government's doing this and I don't really like it. And it happened because of X, Y, and Z. That's really important information for people to send halfway across the world. And I would argue while the local is vital and essential and the building block of what makes, you know, a lot of this worth doing. The other side of it is that I don't want people to forget that there is a whole other world out there and we do need to keep those lines of communication open. And, and we want the benefits of global resources, right? There, 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 is, there are things that do not exist where I live in Texas. There is not a mine for them. There is, there's not a way to grow them from the ground for some things that can be grown. Um, there are things that uh, we simply won't be able to have from the rest of the world. And maybe this is what we call the spice, you know, uh, <laughs> using the, the Dune universe, the Duneverse. Um, the spice of the world is connectivity. Can we have that without the drawbacks? And we, we need global communication in order for that to take place. So lots of, lots of things that we want to keep and lots of things that we want to get rid of. And we got to design the system and thanks so much for joining us for a conversation. Uh, I hope, you know, we, we, we went into a lot of weeds here. So I hope that, um, you know, whether or not you, you followed all of this, including, uh, uh, including my, uh, I don't know, thinking out loud a uh, moment or two, because these are difficult topics. Um, you know, hopefully you learned something from today. Hopefully it made you think about, uh, you know, what it is that might be done or what the problems are. Uh, hopefully this is educational. Thanks for joining us, Gabe. Thanks a lot. I had a great time. And uh, we're going to be back tomorrow um, uh, for another roundtable discussion. And uh, uh, Gabe may be joining us for that one too, but we're going to, um, actually, you know, I'm not going to announce it yet. I, I'm just going to, we're, we're going to move to the count. We're going to move to the outro now, but we'll, we'll be here tomorrow.